Well, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to continue in our second part in looking at Paul's prayer at the end of this chapter. The series is called Imploring the God Who Hears. It's about prayer. Specifically today is prayer for faith in Christ's abiding. Prayer for faith in Christ's abiding. Let me read the whole prayer just so that we have it in our minds. Ephesians 3, verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Back in 2011, God gave me and our family a most unexpected and undeserved gift. And that is through a long process of deciding where the Lord might want us to serve next, He landed us here at Mission Road Bible Church in Kansas City. He brought our family to a place that uh, was not just a place I worked or served or was my occupation. This was the church we wanted to be a part of, and we are immeasurably blessed. I love being one of your pastors. It means the world to me, but it also means getting things like this. Leah Barnett sent me this interchange she had this week with her two young daughters, Ellie, who's three, and Gracie, who's one and a half. Let me tell, give you the correspondence. This is from Leah. Hey, Rick, it's Leah Barnett here. My oldest, that's Ellie, <clears throat> just told me, quote, Pastor Rick is my favorite pastor because he's so nice to me. And I like him too, but Gracie, this is Ellie talking for the one and a half year old, Gracie doesn't like him because he's so tall. <laughs> then she followed up with the obvious. She said, well, thought you might appreciate knowing that A, someone likes you and thinks you're nice and B, someone thinks you're tall. Well, worked on teaching Gracie that you are likable despite your impressive height, she said. <laughs> it is just so sweet to be a part of this church and a part of this staff. Well, in the coming months back in 2011, before I came here, it was, uh, it was a wonderful experience of anticipation. I had plenty of time to think about, what do you preach when you arrive? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I had about four months to decide what will be the first sermon, the first series when I get to Mission Road Bible Church where the Lord had called me? Put a lot of thought into it. I felt like Charles Spurgeon's famous anecdote about picking what to preach. 
He once said when choosing a text on which to preach that every verse in the Bible raised his hand before him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, pick me. It's not really felt that way. I've been reading the Gospel of John in my quiet times and was freshly amazed and overwhelmed at what we call the upper room discourse. John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Five chapters. It actually starts in the upper room, and after chapter 14, it spills down into the Kidron Valley, and it ultimately ends up in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I decided to preach on that text. It was Jesus' last conversation with his disciples that began in the upper room, as I said, spills down into the valley and ultimately lands in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the reason was the impressive nature of that conversation to me. Think about it. John is 21 chapters long, and that one conversation is five chapters long. Roughly one-fourth of all John wanted to write was about one conversation. Secondly, it's the content of that conversation, the central application that began that night. It continues to this very moment. In his final words to the disciples before his execution, Jesus informed them what it would mean. He instructed them how to live a life, follow this, with him, without him. What would it be like to move forward in faith with him not in their physical presence? How would that look? What would that be like? And really the substance of that entire last conversation is to inform and help them know how to live a life of faith in Christ without him being in your very physical presence. Jesus was very aware after his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that every believer then on to now would be living a life of faith, not in his physical presence, but in his heavenly dwelling and his abiding non-sensory presence. So he graciously provided for the disciples, and I think for us, all that is needed to live a life of faith. If, you, if you're struggling on what to read in your Bibles, let, let me just say, John 13 to 15 is great real estate to focus your mind on. The disciples have just finished the Last Supper in the upper room. He's instituted the Lord's table, and Jesus says to them, as they leave the upper room, going down for him to suffer his passion in the garden, he says this, John 14, 16, just listen. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he will be with you forever. There's a lot there. He didn't give them a helper. He gave them another helper that meant that the way that the Holy Spirit was to minister to them would be parallel to the way that Jesus had ministered to them. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him. Notice he doesn't say you see him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. A lot going on there. I'll send the spirit, but I will come also. After a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. And that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be saved, will be loved by my Father. And I will love him, listen, and will disclose myself, Jesus says, to him. 
Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make, we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, uh, gives to you, but I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You've heard that I said to you, I will go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, I've told you before it happens so that when it happens, when he goes away, you may believe, you will have faith. I will not speak with you much more, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. They leave the upper room. They go down the side of the Temple Mount, probably walking through a grove of a vineyard, which makes sense because Jesus immediately starts talking to them about the vine and the branches. God the Father, through Jesus, promises the sending of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is said here to come to help, to comfort, to convict, to teach, to remind, to accompany, and to strengthen believers. But we find out something else and something more. One more passage from that upper room discourse. Now they're probably in the valley of Kidron where the creek flowed in the rainy season, not far from the garden. And Jesus says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? This is John 16, verse 5. But I, because I've said these things to you, 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 sorrow has filled your heart. And I think it would yours and mine as well. Our Savior said, I'm leaving you. But I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit, when he, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears from the Father, from the Son, he will speak and will disclose to you what is to come. Jesus says, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, the Son, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes care of mine and will disclose it to you. You say, why all the attention to this disclosure of Jesus in John before we're looking at Ephesians 3? Well, very simply, Ephesians 3 is Paul praying for the ministry of the Spirit that Jesus promised in John 14 and in John 16. 
In verse 16, if you look back at chapter 3, verse 16, he prays for empowerment of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers in the inner man, verse 16, that he, the, the God the Father, would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. This is exactly what Jesus promised. And Paul now prays for the application of the sending and empowering of the Spirit of God in the lives of the Ephesians and, and subsequently in, in our lives. Then in verse 17, he prays for the very thing Jesus promised the Spirit would do. He says, I pray that the Spirit would empower you, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Can I say without any degree of exaggeration that that little phrase might be the key to living the Christian life, that that little phrase might be the absence that you're hoping to fill in your own walk, that that little phrase can be a single encouragement on how you live the rest of your day and wake up tomorrow and experience a walk with the living, resurrected Savior who is no longer here physically. This is exactly what Jesus said. I'm going to send you the Spirit. He will empower you to know how to live a life with me, without me. And this is Paul praying for that exact issue. So we're going to break just this one phrase down today and look at four empowerments about which to pray for abiding intimately with Christ. It's a long sentence, but I couldn't make it any shorter. Four empowerments. These are things that the Holy Spirit gives us through His power that He prays for in verse 16. Four empowerments about which we should pray about ourselves, about our family, about our friends, about our church for abiding intimately with Christ. The first is in just one word. Strength for personally abiding with Christ. It's about Christ. Verse 17 begins very simply, so that it's a henoclos for the purpose that I'm praying for the purpose that Christ, let's stop right there, Christ. Paul's prayer is that the Holy Spirit from verse 16 would give power, would empower the Ephesian believers to have a personal encounter with Jesus personally. That's a lot of uses of the word personal and it's on purpose. They would personally encounter Jesus personally, himself. Notice that the apostle is not praying about a mere changing behavior. That'll come in chapters four through six. He prays, first of all, that they would encounter Jesus through faith. He's praying, if you were listening closely, for what Jesus promised in John 14, 21. The Lord said this, He who has my commandments, John 14, 21, and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, here it is, and will disclose myself to him. You ever thought much about that phrase? Jesus promised after his resurrection and ascension that he would come to the disciples, he would come to believers, that he would disclose himself to us. Now, we are rightly cautious about any kind of charismatic experience that would go beyond Scripture. But can I remind you that this is in Scripture? 
Jesus promises to disclose himself to us. Now, what does this mean? Let's first answer what it doesn't mean. First of all, it doesn't mean that Jesus will show up in bodily form to believers. I knew of a pastor in California who said, every morning I get up and while I'm shaving, Jesus comes and puts his arm around my shoulder and we talk about the affairs of my day. I know for a fact that that was not Jesus putting his arm around his shoulders. Why? Because after the resurrection and ascension, we have one encounter of Jesus meeting someone and it was his best friend, John. And it, was, it wasn't even, it was buffered through a vision. And he shows up with John in, in Revelation chapter one and what happens? He falls down as a dead man. He doesn't put his arm around him. Let's talk about the affairs of my day while I'm shaving. Can you give me that lotion? I mean, it's not what's happening. So he doesn't show up in bodily form. And if anyone ever tells you they've seen Jesus in bodily form, then let me know that the rapture is imminent. It's not. Also, it doesn't mean that Jesus will speak to you in an audible voice. Contrary to books like Jesus Calling, Jesus is not talking to believers. His word is finished. It is sufficient. He's not whispering or speaking to you in ways that he has not spoken in his word. We sing it all the time. What more can he say than to you? He has said, and we believe that. And thirdly, it doesn't show, tell us that Jesus is going to show up in nature. Look, God discloses his invisible attributes and his divine nature in nature, in its awesomeness. Romans 1 tells us that, right? But you're not going to see the person of Christ in nature as in this disclosure. I do remember a gentleman telling me one time that he didn't need to come to church on, on Sunday morning because he finds Jesus in nature. Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> you find Jesus in his word and you experience his presence among his people. It's not a promise of a post-resurrection visit either, like the disciples experienced, 500 others experienced in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. The truth is, it's more than that. It's more than a momentary, limited encounter with Jesus. What Jesus is promising transcends a momentary, localized, temporary encounter. I think the promise here is the missing link in the chain of Christian experience for far, far too many. Put simply, this verse tells us that Jesus will disclose himself and that we're to pray for Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. This, this, this doctrine informs us that if we remove the eclipses of disobedience and disinterest, apathy, something Something special happens in our hearts as we walk with Christ. Paul hints at this in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 18. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is having us see glimpses of the living, resurrected Savior defined by His Word so that we're changed into His likeness, into His image. So seeing then the glories, the 
excellencies, the attributes, the stories, the teaching, the encounters of Jesus leads to a greater vision, a sharper focus, and a deeper awareness of his permanent abiding presence with us. Gazing at Christ's beauties, his excellencies, his glories, elevates the soul to higher vantage points of worship. So how can you experience Christ's assurance that you would have joy and peace? These come out of John 14 and John 16. Joy and peace and sustenance and meaning and rest and instruction and victory and comfort and sanctification and hope after death. He must disclose or manifest himself to you. What does that mean? Well, we're going to find out as we rush toward the end of this little phrase. Secondly, Paul prays in this little phrase for strength for perpetually abiding with Christ. Not only strength for personally abiding with Christ, but strength for perpetually, always abiding with Christ. Now, this is interesting. It comes in the little phrase that Christ may dwell. Now, if we can geek out for just a minute on some Greek, the normal word that Paul uses all throughout his epistles for abide is the word meno, to live in, to abide. He doesn't use it. He uses a much stronger word here. Kata oikeo, oikos, from the word house. It literally means to settle down in, to dwell in. It's used of moving from a temporary tent into a permanent stone structure. Inhabit, indwell, settle down in. It's a permanent home. We often say around the church that Jesus is not to be a part of your life, but the point of your life, that's what's going on here. He's not, he's not to be a visitor in your life, coming and going, and your attention is there sometimes and it's not. He's to be a permanent fixture of focus that he may dwell, take up residence, live in, abide permanently. Christianity is not a part-time gig. It doesn't happen just on Sundays and just with other Christians. It is an all-consuming relationship with the resurrected Lord Jesus. Back to Jesus' promise in John 14. After he promised the sending of the Holy Spirit, he added this promise. I love this. We talked about this a little bit last week. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we, his father and him. And he just in the previous verses said the Holy Spirit, we will come to him, make our abode, our permanent residence with him. So you might be tempted to say, well, if he's praying that Christ may dwell, then it's possible that Christ wouldn't dwell. So there's, there, there can be gaps in a believer's life where Christ is not indwelling. No, that's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying, if you go to the end and we'll, we'll get there, is that we recognize his indwelling by faith, not that he stops indwelling us. It's not that he stops abiding with us. Christ is always with the believer, but as we will see, by faith, he is to be the permanent and active interest and pursuit of our hearts. The permanent and active interest and pursuit of our hearts. 
That's what it means that he may dwell. It doesn't mean that he moves in and out. It means that you recognize him and you don't. We've had so many guests in our home of different natures. Some people come over for five minutes. Some people come over for an hour. Some people come over for a meal. Some people spend the night. Some people spend multiple nights. We've had people live with us before. But they're guests. That's different than living at our house. It's different than always considering that home. Is Christ, is he treated like a guest or like someone who lives in the home of your heart? This phrase accelerates and crescendos as it progresses. He prays first for strength for personally abiding with Christ and strength for perpetually abiding with Christ. And thirdly, strength for affectionately abiding with Christ. I know what you're thinking. That's a cute word. You're kind of affectionate. No, I mean affections in, 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 the, in the way Jonathan Edwards would talk about our affections, our, our heart, our longing, our inner man. We began to consider what this phrase means last week. The phrase, in your hearts. It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And we notice that it parallels verse 16, which talks about the inner man. The target of Paul's prayer is the real us, the inner man, the eternal soul. It's inner as opposed to outer. Obviously, it's not talking about the the, the physical, corporeal uh, uh, expression of who we are. It's talking about our souls. And it's comparing, it's uh, parallel rather to our, our hearts or our inner man in verse 16. Now, it's important, I think, to take a quick, just very brief tour. How does Paul use this term, in our hearts? What does he mean by that? We can find out by looking at how he uses it elsewhere in Ephesians. For example, in chapter 1, verse 18, he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, or I pray that the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. In other words, there's something about us, there's something internal, our inner man, our inner hearts that can be enlightened, that can see, that can perceive. In Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Meaning that there's an experience with God that we have that's beyond the external, that's in our hearts that he's praying about encouraging us. Then Ephesians 6, 5, slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart. Meaning you can have an outward expression of what looks like obedience, but it's not real in your heart. You know, I'm standing up on the outside, but sitting down on the inside, that kind of thing. There's a way to do that even and feign Christian obedience. He says, make sure your obedience is sincere in your heart because, last phrase, it's to the Lord, not just to the horizontal expression of obedience. There's also a negative side of the heart as well. In Ephesians 4.18, Paul describes an unbeliever's heart. Listen to how he describes this. Darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. So we find out that the heart can be soft or hard, pliable or rigid. Soft to what? The Lord in His presence or hard to the Lord in obeying Him. 
I love that Jonathan Edwards calls the heart, the inner man, the affections. That's who we are. It's our affections. It's a great term because that is mind, emotions, all of who we are, all of what makes us tick, the inklings of our heart, the musings of our mind, the way our affections lean, our desires, really ultimately where we make decisions, that's our heart. We've been peeking ahead at where Paul will take us in chapter 4 when he says, but you did not learn, that's the heart, your heart did not absorb or take into account Christ in this way, if indeed you've heard Him and been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. If that's where truth is, if that's where we're taught, if that's what we're taught, if He is our curriculum, this makes sense that Paul would pray that the dwelling of Christ in our lives would be experienced through faith here in in chapter 3. We'll learn the specific pursuit of this in Ephesians 5.18 because Paul will say, be filled with the Spirit. And that's parallel to Colossians 3.16, which says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now, we added a footnote here yesterday. Paul is praying about the heart, about the inner man. It doesn't mean we can't pray about external matters or physical matters or sicknesses or infirmities. Obviously, we can. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Everything means everything. What's on your heart is what you pray about. I just wonder if what's on our heart is our hearts about Jesus. If so, we'll pray about that. The question before us is, if we know how to care about and pray for the inner man, the heart, the affections, the decision-making processes, mission control central in our lives, in our friends' lives, is that the focus of our prayer? Is heart change through the Spirit's enablement a part of our prayer? It's also the basis of our evangelism. Let me connect this kind of interestingly. Peter says, sanctify, 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. What's the hope within you? The permanent abiding presence of the Trinity, Christ in particular in this passage. Okay, um, I'm going to ask you to, to work with me here for a minute. Um, we've done this exercise before in the past, but I, I have great confidence that you can do it. You've got to track with me for a minute. I want to read you a, a paragraph from Jonathan Edwards. Now, Jonathan Edwards takes a little bit of getting used to with his cadence, his rhythm. He's puritanical. But just get the gist, and then we're going to isolate and drill down into his last paragraph here. Okay? Just... Work with me here. He's taught, this is the last paragraph of the first part of religious affections. It's, it's one of my favorite paragraphs outside of the Bible ever written. Um, and I, I think you'll see why in a moment. I'll stop and give you a couple of comments, but this is very, very insightful. Edward says, remember, he's talking about our heart, our inner man, our affections. If we ought ever to exercise our affections at all, if we're going to feel, if we're going to think, if we're going to know, if we're going to be passionate, And if the Creator has not unwisely constituted the human nature in making these principles a part of it, 
when they are vain and useless, then they ought, our affections, ought to be exercised about those objects which are most worthy of them. But is there anything which Christians can find in heaven or earth so worthy of to be the objects of their admiration and love, their earnest longings and desires, their hope and their rejoicing, their fervent zeal as those things that are held forth to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is there anything more worthy of your passions and your affections than Christ is what he's saying? In which are in which not only are things declared most worthy to affect us, but they are exhibited, demonstrated in the most affecting manner. That's so important. He's saying that everything God revealed in the Word, and specifically everything that God revealed in His Son, was specifically revealed to affect us, to impact us. The glory and the beauty of the blessed Jehovah, he says, which is most worthy in itself to be the object of our admiration and love is there exhibited in the most affecting manner that he can be conceived of or of, as it appears, shining in all its luster in the face of an incarnate, infinitely loving, meek, compassionate, dying redeemer. He goes on. All the virtues of the Lamb of God, his humility, patience, meekness, submission, obedience, love, and compassion are exhibited to our view, this is reading the Gospels, obviously, in a manner the most tending to move our affections. And they're done so in any way that can ever be imagined. As they all had their greatest trial, their greatest, highest exercise, and their brightest manifestation when he was in the most affecting circumstances, even when he was under the last sufferings, those unutterable and unparalleled sufferings he endured from his tender love and pity to us. There also the hateful nature of our sins is manifested in the most affecting manner possible as we see the dreadful effects of them in that our Redeemer who undertook to answer for us suffered for them. Jesus was a man of affections too. And he applied them to dying for us, he says. And there we have the most affecting manifestation of God's hatred of sin, his wrath and justice in punishing it, as we see his justice in the strictness and inflexibleness of it, and his wrath and his terribleness in so dreadfully punishing our sins in the one who is infinitely dear to him and loving to us. That's all introduction to these last words. This is what Edward says. So, God has disposed things in the affair of our redemption and in his glorious dispensations revealed to us in the gospel as though everything were purposely contrived in such a manner as to have the greatest possible tendency to reach our hearts in the most tender part and to move our affections most sensibly and strongly. Then he asked this question, how great cause we have therefore to be humbled to the dust that 
we are no more affected. What is he saying? God revealed himself in Christ and every manifestation of that revelation is to touch our innermost affections in our heart in the most, Edward says, tender way. It's not about just being a believer. It's about knowing the Savior and everything we know about him should move our hearts to experiential love, adoration, and worship. How can we move our affections then, the inklings of our heart, our mission control central, our our inner man towards Christ? Well, the answer is in the final phrase, final two words of this phrase. Strength for confidently abiding with Christ. It's through faith. It's the key that unlocks it all. Through faith. Faith is the way that Christ takes up permanent residence in our affections and in our hearts. It's by faith. It's by believing. And you obviously would ask then, well, okay, what what is faith? Well, the Holy Spirit knew we would ask that question, so he gave us an exact answer. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, not like you hope you get something for Christmas. It's something that you know is going to happen that you're, you're hoping for. Faith is the assurance of things you know are coming and the conviction of things, get this, not seen. Faith, if I can say it this way, summarizing those two lines, faith is simply taking God at his word about things that are not perceived by the senses. Let me say that again. Faith is taking God at his word about things, spiritual realities, that are not perceived by the senses. Assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, not empirical. All It goes back to the giving of the Spirit, which will alert us to knowing these realities. Listen to Paul's description in 2 Corinthians 5 about this, the life of faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 1, For we know that if the earthly tent, he he calls our bodies tents. They're tents as opposed to houses. We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, that's a really nice way to say when we die, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. If we die here, it's temporary. We have an eternal body waiting for us in heaven. For indeed, in this house, we groan, our bodies now. And he doesn't say house, it's literally in this tent. We groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Can I just say the older I get, my body groans a little a little differently and a little bit more. Um, joints and knees and ankles and shoulders and the like just seem, seems to groan a little bit more than it used to. Inasmuch as having put it on, we'll be found, not be found naked. We're going to be fully clothed in heaven. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. 
because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. If you live long enough, you will someday see as a believer that heaven is more to be desired than, than this world. Now, he who prepared us for this purpose is God, who gave the Spirit as a pledge. There's the Holy Spirit's gift. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we were at, are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, then he says what you all know. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We're of good courage. And I say, prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Paul makes a central contrast in that little paragraph between faith, believing, and seeing what can be grasped by the senses, empirical proof. And a quick glance at these verses says that Paul is not unaware of this world. We groan, we're burdened, it's hard. But he says that one of the solutions to not being strapped and trapped by this world is thoughts of what God is going to do in the future. Back to Ephesians 3, a quick observation should be made here. The, the whole trinity is, is, is in this passage. In verse 14, we see the Father. In verse 16, we see the Spirit. And in verse 17, we see the Son. Paul teaches us to pray to the Father that our hearts are strengthened by the Spirit to have faith in the Son. Pretty simple. Man, the importance of this prayer cannot be overstated or overestimated. Paul prays that the Holy Spirit, think about this, the Holy Spirit will strengthen you so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, through believing. It's the key to how a believer lives the life of faith. It's the key to our experience with God through Christ. It's, it's the key that opens the door to the entire Christian life that we live by believing what you can't see, what you can't experience with the senses. It's important for us then to say, if we're struggling with living by faith, that's a failure in our hearts, in the inner man, in the mission control central, in the decision making. So we have to ask, what is competing for permanent residence for our affections in our hearts with Christ? What's competing with Christ to have permanent drawing affections, relationship, a hobby, a habit, a sin? What, what is it in our heart that occupies our desires, our passions about which we make the most decisions. We've said it so often, there should be nothing, nothing more interesting, nothing more desirable to a Christian than Jesus. Nothing. Paul was afraid. We talk about this passage so often. 2 Corinthians eleven three. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Then he says, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus, who we have not preached, you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, 
or a different gospel that you've not accepted, then he says, you bear this beautifully. You're, you're too happy to trade in the counterfeit for the real. Christianity changes your behavior. We're going to see that for three chapters, four, five, and six in, in Ephesians. Don't, don't, don't hear me wrong. But behavior modification and behavioral change is is after and because of and consequent to a heart that dwells and abides with Christ every day, more increasingly. Look, Jesus, his infinite wisdom, he understood this, which is why he said, do, when you get together, have the bread and the cup, so that you'll remember me. Because without reminders, you're tempted to forget. We can apply more reminders than just the communion exercise to our, to our walk with Christ. What, what do you do to remind yourself? Do you put the Bible in places you'll remember so you'll read it? Do you, do you remember to pray? Do you, we have post-it notes for everything. Have you put one on your, on your mirror, on your car dash to say, pray, to, to, to say, remember, to, to say, focus? Oh, I'm surprised by the older I get how, how much I have to do to remember things. I was in Italy a few weeks ago and we had to, there were some things I needed to do at an early hour because of the time change. And so I, I set an alarm with a reminder and the reminder with an alarm. Yes, I did both of those. Um, and then I had this list that I was going to do and I had to check them off because I was afraid I would forget Are you ever so concerned that you might forget the priority of Jesus in your life that you set alarms on your reminders and reminders on your alarms? Do you know how badly we need to be reminded to remember and focus and craft our hearts to dwell on his permanent abiding presence through believing, through, through faith. Spurgeon talked about this verse. It's so good. He says things in such helpful ways. He said in this verse, quote, Observe the words that he may dwell in your heart that best room of the house of manhood, not in your thoughts alone, but in your affections, not merely in the mind's meditations, but in the heart's emotions. We should pant after love to Christ of a most abiding character, not a love that flames up and then dies down out of the darkness, into the darkness of a few embers, but a constant flame fed by sacred fuel, like the fire upon the altar, which never went out. This cannot be accomplished except by faith. Faith must be strong or love will be, not be fervent. The root of the flower must be healthy or we cannot expect the bloom to be sweet. Faith is the lily's root and love is the lily's bloom. Now, reader, Jesus cannot be in your heart's love except that you have a firm hold of him by your heart's faith. And therefore, pray 
that you may always trust Christ in order that you may always love him. And if love be cold, be sure that faith is drooping. End quote. Wow, is your faith drooping? I sense that mine droops not only in time to time, hour to hour, sometimes seasons. Where's your faith? This world is not forever. So, really quick, how can you strengthen your faith? Can I give you three encouragements? How can you strengthen your faith? If Christ abides in our hearts through faith, how can we strengthen our faith? Three just quick encouragements. Number one, read the Scriptures with belief. I know that sounds obvious, but read the Scriptures with belief. Read them as if you're reading truth and what happened is true because it is. Take what you read as truth and at face value. Read the scriptures with belief. That's the same as saying with faith. Number two, bolster your faith with other believers. Christianity was never intended to be lived out alone. Bolster your faith with other believers. This means intentional fellowship. It means coming to church. It means Bible studies and family discussions and care groups. It means joining a church. Bolster your faith with other believers. Talk about what you're learning, what you're thinking, right, wrong. And then thirdly, and this is where we really need to be vulnerable. Face your doubts and discouragements honestly. Face your doubts and discouragements honestly. Um, this means seeking answers to your questions with others and with reliable sources. You're, you're, if you live as a believer long enough, you're going to run up against head scratchers and, and moments where you just stop and say, is, is this real? Is this is this truth? That's normal. We are walking by faith and not by sight. Face those doubts. Ask those questions. Talk to any of the staff or elders or your care group leaders. If we don't know, we'll help you find the answers. Listen, the Bible and the Christian faith can survive your scrutiny. Don't be afraid to ask. There's a difference between asking and doubting. Ask the questions. Let's seek the answers. Remember the father in Mark 9? I remember this preaching in this text. It was so impactful to me. He had a son who was afflicted with seizures, would basically go into convulsions and seizures. They had no control. He, he seeks Jesus. Jesus says, if you will believe, then I'll heal your son. I'll cast out this demon. And in Mark 9, 24, the father says, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. That's so instructive. It, it is completely possible for you to have a legitimate, real faith and for unbelief to sneak in and rob you of joy, rob you of assurance, rob you of conviction, rob you of the power to fight sin. I like this man. I do believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus does not rebuke him for his unbelief. 
He helps him. He answers his prayer. How's your faith? You know what you can do? You can pray for the Spirit's empowerment so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What a prayer request. What a, what a sweet thing. Maybe you gather your family together and just say, can we pray about each other and for each other and with each other that our faith would be strengthened to believe and trust in Christ's permanent abiding presence for all that he promised and all that we can enjoy in him. What a God to give such a provision. Jesus was in the garden and he prayed for assistance and God sent him an angel. We pray for God's assistance and he sends the Trinity. What a gift. What a gift. Father, please increase our faith, deepen our confidence. Make us aware of the idols in our heart that compete for the abiding affections of our heart and help us to mortify and execute those so that we can enjoy the gift of your presence, the wonder of your abiding, the joy of our salvation. Lord, I pray for Specifically, believers this here this morning who, whose faith is weary and weak, who wonder if they make it, who wonder if it's true. Sustain them and help us to carry the burden of those questions alongside one another. Lord, we do believe. We do believe. Please help our unbelief. Amen.